everybody. Happy New Year and welcome to another year of podcasts on the Westwood Living Podcast Network. And I'm thrilled that the first podcast we do in 2024 was a bit inevitable. I knew it was going to happen because one of the most fascinating people in our town is Charles Donahue. And it is great to be with you in your house. How are you? Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year too, Tom. Thank you. Um, I can't wait for this conversation. It's actually going to be two episodes. We're going to break this in half. The first one is going to be a bit of a get to know you with Charlie, because I think you're the type of person who people recognize. You've done a lot here in this town. There is a whole generation that knows uh, of what you've done throughout your career. But there are so many more who I think could benefit from understanding a bit about your background. I know most of us saw that you wrapped up a very successful run with the Westwood School Committee in 2023, and you, you got a great send-off, and you've left such a legacy there, so congratulations. But that is really just the latest of a very storied career. So well, thank uh, you, Tom. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to know a little bit more about you. So a Norwood high school graduate. So there is a lot of dedication not only to Westwood, but really to Norwood, almost equally, right? Yes, I loved growing up in Norwood, uh, learned a lot about getting along with people uh, in Norwood. Uh, we had a very diverse group of people living in Norwood at the time, as there are today. So I think it was a wonderful education, uh, just uh, in college, but also in getting to meet a lot of different people. It's clear by getting to know you, by interacting with you, by seeing how you interact with people, how important education is to you and how much education meant to your life and your success. Where did you get that bug? What was it about you that you were so focused on the importance of education? Well, I had a father who was an attorney and uh, always emphasized the importance of education. He was a chairman of the Norwood School Committee, chairman of the Board of Selectmen in Norwood, chairman of the Little League. Very encouraging. My mother was a school teacher, so there was at home a great uh, support to study and to do the best you can. Uh, and uh, I, growing up in Norwood in the ponds, I learned how to play hockey. And in those days, you didn't know it, but you get to high school and suddenly you get a letter from a college uh, asking you, would you be interested in playing hockey in college? It was beyond the wildest dreams that you ever thought you'd play college hockey. But uh, I went to Brown University largely because I was a hockey player, not because I was a genius. Uh, but uh, there were uh, very many great memories from having grown up in the town, learned a lot how to be an athlete and how to be a scholar to, uh, to survive uh, for happy years at Brown. You know, learning what I've been able to learn about the different universities, Brown is so unique because it is known for allowing its students to pursue kind of the path they'd like to pursue. And knowing what I know about you, that seems like a perfect fit. Did Brown provide you that opportunity to follow whichever path you thought might be the best path for you within their infrastructure? Well, I didn't realize it at the time, but I wanted to be a pre-med. And playing hockey and being a pre-med uh, was a challenge. Uh, if you had a hockey game on a Wednesday night at Dartmouth, you got back to the campus at 5 in the morning and you had classes all day and you missed your lab. So it was a very difficult challenge. I ended up spending... Uh, all of July and all of August from 9 in the morning till 5 at night at Harvard doing organic chemistry because I didn't have time at Brown to do it and I couldn't play hockey. But we did play in the Frozen Four, the last four college hockey teams in the national championships with Boston College and Brown representing the East uh, and uh, Michigan Tech and North Dakota representing the West. So we, we were very lucky to have a great team and, and great opportunity and uh, a lot of excitement at Brown for a winning athletic team. So after you graduated, was it immediately that you went into the Peace Corps? Well, I applied for medical school, law school, and 
they said the Peace Corps offered a unique opportunity uh, to learn about the world, learn about other cultures, uh, and uh, President you know, Kennedy's words, you know, do something for your country. So my father spent four years in World War II in the South Pacific, was torpedoed uh, three, twice, uh, was in nine major battles, and I felt it was time to give back a little bit, so the Peace Corps was a way of giving back. Uh, and so I got into law school, I was on a waiting list at a medical school, and I had the Peace Corps. So my father wasn't too happy with my not going to law school, he wanted me to go into law with him, but I said I can always do it when I come back. So fortunately I was able to go over and spend two years in Malaysia working tuberculosis control. Uh, and uh, it was a life-changing experience. Uh, led to coming back, went to Cornell for four years on a government grant uh, where they're trying to get people to go into a new field called health planning, where con uh, consumer groups would be set up around the United States to study access, quality, and cost. And I decided that was a very challenging thing to get into, and that was where my career went, you know, uh, in this field of health planning, uh, ending up eventually in Boston. But I did graduate work at Cornell that led to my first published paper when I became interested in infant mortality and why the United States ranked very poorly in the world. And I did studies of what's going on in Europe, what's going on. I gathered data at Brown, published my first paper, and came to Boston and worked in the area of infant mortality research for a couple of years. And I'm very proud to say Massachusetts has the lowest infant mortality rate in the country and the lowest maternal mortality rate in the country based on a lot of things we happen to do back in the uh, early 1970s. You almost tongue-in-cheek described the way you uh, spent your professional years as being a troublemaker. Yeah. <laughs> That's not fair, because I think most troublemakers are just people who want to push the needle, people who want to you know, perhaps uh, explore a different path, uh, a different way to a different solution. And you just referenced the success you had with the infant mortality and the maternal mortality rates. Uh, why do you describe yourself as a troublemaker? Well, part of the Peace Corps is, you know, what you can do to change things. And I happen to be in a very rural part of Malaysia where the government did not have the, the resources to do a lot of things. So I had to come up with ideas. How do we get resources there? How do we, I'm writing a paper right now on that experience to share at the, at the Boston University School of Public Health for the students interested in international health. I'm going to try to share that with them. But, uh, you know, healthcare in Massachusetts was a real challenge. Uh, when I first came to Boston, uh, physicians in the neighborhoods, they were neighborhood doctors, were retiring and dying, and the young doctors were getting, become specialists and going out to the suburbs where people had uh, insurance. So this concept of a neighborhood health center started where a couple of doctors at Tufts went out and set it up at the uh, Columbia Point housing project. They set up the first neighborhood health center in the United States where the housing project would get organized, they would have a president and a treasurer, and these doctors taught them uh, how to hire people, how to hire doctors, how to fire doctors, how to get reimbursed. And they, they really set this concept up. So slowly, every neighborhood in Boston began to organize, mostly retirees that were well-educated, and they set up neighborhood health centers. The first ones in the United States were set up in Boston. In the early 80s, Probably about 80% of the neighborhood health centers in the United States were in Boston. Now it's everywhere, in rural areas, urban areas. So I was a part of that. And it wasn't really troublemaking, but it was setting up a new health system, working and helping people get organized. Uh, 
Action for Boston Community Development, ABCD. Set up courses. Uh, how to how to run a meeting. What's Robert's Rules of Order? How do you do this? Just to get organized to set this up. So it was fun working with that. And then I got working with a group called the Health Planning Council for Greater Boston. We were, first of all, asked to offer comments on hospital construction projects. Uh, Mass General wants to add 1,000 beds. Is that the best thing that can happen in healthcare? That we're not too happy with us when we said there's a lot of other things that are needed. Uh, once uh, one of my staff persons said, we were on the McNeil-Lear report last night, Charlie. The Health Planning Council for Greater Boston was on there. I said, how? Well, Margaret Heckler, who was from Wellesley, was the secretary of HEW. And she announced that there's a new technology out called a lithotripta. It goes in and it can crush stones inside the body, preventing surgery. And according to the FDA, uh, they had just announced today that this new technology has been approved. And then according to studies by the Health Planning Council of Greater Boston. So everybody called us the next day, a thousand telephone calls, because mm -hmm. we were the experts in the world on what is this technology? How do you do it? So that's an example of what we would do people weren't happy with. We were asked to comment on how many heart transplant programs does Boston need? Four to begin with or one to begin with? They didn't like our responses to that. We also did studies looking at variations in utilization in hospitals. How often are people hospitalized? Uh, is a high hysterectomy rate good? Should everybody be high? Or is it too high? And is a low rate of hip surgery good? Or is it too low? So we did looked at those data, did a study, and got it published in the JAMA, uh, Journal of the American Medical Association. They published our article and said doctors should begin looking at these data. So suddenly we went to the College of Surgeons of Massachusetts and said, we just published this article. They say you should be looking at these data. They were warned they're not to work with consumer groups. Oh, these are dangerous people, these consumer groups. Make a long story short, we published eight papers in medical journals in obstetrics, pediatrics, and surgery. And after having worked with these physician groups for six years, one of them came to me and said, Charlie, you were very polite. You came to us. You told us what you wanted to do, and you wanted our advice. And we did listen to you, but the method you use is best described as the velvet fist. We knew you were going to do it, but you were very nice about it, and you got us into it, and we're very happy we did it with you. So that's an example of something that we did was nationally recognized, uh, and we were on a lot of national commissions, on that, uh, and then we had a lot of the uh, employers in Massachusetts in the unions wanted to contain their health insurance costs that were going through the roof, and they wanted to do that without cutting benefits. And so we started to work with the big unions, major corporations, coming up with strategies on how do you, we did lectures at the Labor Guild, which is a school for industrial relations, and we began to work with them. And then when health planning ended, federal government stopped funding, these 200 regional health planning agencies, there was five in Massachusetts, Health Planning Council Greater Boston was one. I set up a company with a friend of mine uh, where we worked, continued to work with the unions and the employers who were self-insured and uh, set up a company that eventually had 600,000 people working with us. We were bigger than the Harvard plan. We were bigger than Tufts when we sold the company uh, in uh, 2002, but we we were able to come up with a whole new way of providing health insurance uh, for the unions and the employers that were self-insured. So all of that was questionable, and uh, I did mention how the President of Blue Cross came to us and wanted to buy us because we had more of the big unions than Blue Cross in Massachusetts at that time. 
So that's just a quick run through. And since then, I've been working at the School of Public Health at Boston University doing lectures with the students that wanted to see how did you change these things? What did you do? How did you get people involved? Uh, and there are students who want to do that. In Massachusetts, as uh, when Mitt Romney came in and was asked to do something about health insurance costs, he brought the Heritage Foundation in, very conservative principles, got Ted Kennedy to support it, a lot of the consumer activist groups in Massachusetts, Healthcare for All, Health Law Advocates, Community Catalyst, advised Ted Kennedy, and Ted Kennedy said to Mitt Romney, I'm going to support you, Mitt, and that became the Massachusetts Health Plan, which is now the health plan of the United States. It's really incredible when it's you think a, about the reach and how it has expanded so exponentially. And it was a lot of consumer groups advising Kennedy on what we could accept, what conservative principles made sense. So uh, I've recently done a, a briefing of the 15 people I met in my career who made a huge difference, people who wanted to end maternal mortality and infant mortality, the, the, the work that Ted Kennedy did. Uh, Ted Kennedy said Richard Nixon had a health plan in the, in the 70s, and Ted, Ted said, I killed it. But then I studied it, and, and I, there were some brilliant things in there. I tried to introduce Richard Nixon's plan in the 90s in the United States Senate, and nobody could understand it. So what I've learned is the perfect should not be the enemy of the better, and Mitt Romney, what you've proposed is much better than anything we have. So I'm going to support you as a beginning point. So that... So a lot that was learned in Massachusetts that become, has become national policy and why we have the, the lowest uninsured rate in the country, with one of the lowest infant mortality rates, one of the lowest maternal mortality rates, all because of innovative groups in the neighborhoods. The health centers that have developed now specialize in Haitian health care in Mattapan and specialize in Irish and uh, Italian areas and Vietnamese language and support. Uh, various other languages, LGBT health centers. Uh, for every group, there's a health center specializing in Boston that you know, had a huge impact on COVID, getting people to come in, women to come in for early prenatal care, crucial in preventing uh, infant mortality, preventing maternal mortality. But having these neighborhoods that are friendly to the cultures of people is, is very unique. But that goes back to the 70s when Neighborhood people get involved in wanting to change things. Right, let's reel this back into your connection to Westwood. So when did you and Nancy move here? We moved here about 25 years ago. Uh, we uh, partly, as every many, many people, moved to Westwood for education. Uh, we thought it would be a wonderful town to grow up, bring our kids up in. Uh, I was very active in Westwood youth hockey. I was a coach for 12 years, president for a few years. Uh, we did a lot of creative things with Westwood youth hockey, and including bringing women in uh, Westwood High School was one of the first four high schools in Massachusetts to have a girls' hockey team. Uh, my daughter became interested in hockey when she was uh, 10 years old. She was into swimming and gymnastics, and could I do this, Dad? And I said, sure, but you can't do this. So anyway, she went on to become the, the captain and academic All-American uh, at University of Vermont. And uh, so she went to the University of Vermont at the BU School of Public Health, and uh, then she got, went, got her law degree at Northeastern. And while at Northeastern, she went over and interviewed with a federal judge for a summer job. So I said, how did the interview go? All he wanted to do, talk about was hockey. <laughs> the judge loved hockey. His daughter loved hockey. And he wanted a woman lawyer who knew what it was like to fight for the puck in the corner. And that was my daughter, <laughs> who's now a very successful uh, attorney at UMass Memorial Hospital in Worcester. So the whole family were hockey players, and I was a coach and had great fun in Westwood. 
and as most people, you get to know people in Westford for your kids, you know, the parents of right. your kids, and you get to know them. And I became very impressed with the school system, the teachers that they had, uh, and uh, the special ed opportunities that were at Westwood High, and uh, nothing but the greatest respect for the teachers. And then the opportunity came to maybe make a contribution, uh, and uh, I ran for the school committee, was on there for nine years, uh, and met great people who were on the school committee before me, uh, Brian Kelly, who was on the school committee, Josepha Jowdy taught me a lot. Uh, and then uh, just looking at the creative things that were going on already in Westwood, you know, and how do we expand on it? Student Independent Study Project, where kids get to submit uh, a, uh, an idea for a new a course that they will be responsible for and take this senior year and work with a teacher and an outside mentor. These, the, the J term, where the teachers got together and came up the last week of school is kind of boring. It's hot, grades are in. They came up with an idea to come up with a course that you take every day for a week. Get your scuba diving license. You go into Westwood Pool for two days, you get on a Cohasset and get, get crams. You, you climb the three peaks of uh, New England. You camp out, you climb the peak, then you come down. That's a week course. Go into a restaurant in Westwood and learn how to cook in a restaurant. In a, in a kitchen, how to visit all the museums. This was, cr you sat down, I sat down there for a, a, about a month with the teachers and realized suddenly that th these teachers are brilliant. They could have set up companies on their own. They just like to teach. But the, the, the ideas that they had were brilliant. One of the courses that you take uh, after graduating from college, if you're gonna go to a big business, is they put you through a Dale Carnegie course, how to win friends and influence people. Mm -hmm the second most popular book in the world after the Bible. Uh, there's a, there's a course of people own a franchise to teach this course. I had a son who had a master's in business. He went down to Rhode Island 12 nights to take a Dale Carnegie course, had me get down for his graduation. That course was taught at Westwood High for three years. A fellow I knew who was uh, owned the course, brought him out, he agreed to do it, and it was kind of messed up during COVID, but kids in Westwood had the chance to take this before college uh, on their resume, it would impress any employer that a kid that's been through Dale Carnegie at that age. So Westwood has opened up to all kinds of innovative things besides having a tremendous group of teachers. Uh, innovation. You, you touched on it, and it's a good place for us to put a bow on this episode. So we will do so here at this stage. But we were, we're going to have a second episode where we talk most specifically about a great initiative that you have helped start and, and get included in the Westwood Public Library. So this little get to know you was great. For those of you listening, we're going to release a second episode with Charlie shortly. And I think you'll be very impressed with something that's available to you as an adult, but also to your young children and students as well. So stay with us. Uh, we will be releasing this second episode shortly. But for now, that is Charlie Donahue, the man, the legend here, who's one of Westwood's finest. So thanks so much for this one. Look forward to continuing our conversation. Thank you, Tom. I'm sorry for a little long-winded. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Anybody who doesn't like listening to Charlie's stories, that's your own fault. So stay with us here on the Westwood Living Podcast Network.